Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Ian Gould. Hi, Ian, and welcome. Hello, lovely to be here. Hey, and thanks for joining us. Ian Gould is an actor and director specializing in Shakespeare and classical theater. He's toured across the U.S. and Europe and appeared off-Broadway and in regional theaters nationwide. His off-Broadway credits include working with the acting company, the Peccadillo Theater Company, Theater Row, New York Classical Theater, where he is an artistic associate. Uh, Regional credits include appearances at the Guthrie, Shakespeare in the Sound, Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, Center Stage Baltimore, and Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival, Luna Stage, and Seasons in Rep with the Great Lakes and the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. He can be next heard as the clown and other roles in Next Chapter Podcast's eight-episode audio adaptation of The Winter's Tale, which we'll get back to in just a hot second. Directing credits include The Comedy of Errors for gallery players and The Winter's Tale for the Stellar Adler Studio. And he received his MFA from the Shakespeare Theatre Company Academy and his BFA from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. He's currently on the faculty at the New York Conservatory of Dramatic Arts. Ian, what a resume. That's fantastic. You've been not only all over the country, but all over the world. I've been around the world, and I, 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 I can't find my baby. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's a little, that's a little, uh, that's a little Lisa Stansfield shout out for, uh, for those who were around in the 90s. Yeah, Laura Stansfield. Okay, so just really quickly, you're going to be in the next chapter podcast, eight episode audio adaptation of The Winter's Tale with Miriam Laub as the producer. Fancy this. We just interviewed Miriam two days ago. Oh, how funny. Look at that. (laughs) See? It's all connected. That's right. And we might as well start there because that's something that is kind of was kind of unusual for a long time, but now is coming back into vogue doing audio only performances or productions of Shakespeare. And it hasn't been since like the golden age of radio that that was a thing, but now now it's a thing again. Yeah. So how did you prepare for that? Well, we had, you know, it was, I think we started doing, you know, I, I think the, that audio, audio Shakespeare came back, came roaring back during the pandemic. And so in pandemic style, we had rehearsal for a couple of weeks over Zoom. And then, so we had a, a couple of weeks of rehearsal and a couple of weeks in recording studio. And uh, it was great fun. It's a, it's a lot of like, it's a lot of table work, just like a regular production. But instead of the moment when you get on your feet is actually when you start getting in an audio version really into the details of how do I communicate this idea when I can only do it vocally? You know, how do we make sure that we're really making the points we want to make and communicating the story that we want to communicate when you've only got your voice to do it? And also, how do you, you know, I play, I think, three people in this. So, you know, how do you differentiate your your characters without falling into the trap of like doing a funny voice or, you know, which is is sort of, but you do have to, you know, you have to resist the temptation to sort of, you know, do a funny voice, but you also have to find people who live, who express themselves through different vocal colors, which is a really fun experiment. Yep. And there's a dog. There's a dog. So... I often talk to my students about how the body and the voice are connected. And if you energize the body, the voice often follows. So do you find that when you're doing it in a podcast version that you want to get up and get around and move around or? Oh yeah, you... I had to do, you know, it's, it's, I, I never worked with the particular recording technology that we had, which was a, you know, you're in a, you're in a little Midtown Manhattan audio recording booth and you have to, for sound levels, so you have to stay fairly close to the mic, you know, just a few inches from your face, a little, little pop screen on it. But the 
you have to make sure that like your mouth is right in front of the mic at all times, but you have to do, but I mean, I, I mean, I, I did anyway, you know, it's like, I have to do it on my feet. I'm on my feet and I'm waving my arms and doing all kinds of stuff in this performance. Nobody's going to see it, right. but I hope they can hear it in a weird way because I, I feel like I can't do, especially a part like the clown who is, you know, a, a part that's very, that's very physical and ordinarily in, includes a lot of physical comedy. I can't, stand still and and do it. it it's like uh, it's like trying to pat your head and rub your stomach you have to you have to engage yourself physically so i'm like i'm doing all kinds of crazy stuff in the recording studio that no one will ever see but it helped me get the performance right we got to get the documentary yeah. <laughs> when you're in the recording studio are you alone in the studio or are there other actors there so there are yeah it's interesting because the actors were actually all over the country but when the actors who were all sort of New York based were together. We were in the studio together, but we were all in separate booths and separate rooms. You know, so the experience was, you know, they, they may as well have been in, in Minnesota because, you know, everybody's alone in their own little their own little booth with their own little headset. And we can see each other. You you know, we actually plugged everybody into Zoom so we could see each other on a screen. Now were you doing it live, like in yeah. with each other? So the dialogue would be oh, so it's like a little bit of Brady Bunce and you're looking like down right. at the person. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, you know, because you have to be very close to the mic you know it's like you can't actually you know you're, you're trying to sort of do that and keep looking sideways and sort of keep one eye on your scene partner so that you can stay you know as connected as you can <laughs> but it's very it's, it's a it was yeah. it was great fun i hope i i hope i do it again good to talk to you ian see you later no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so ian you yeah. You are a, a an alum of the Shakespeare Theater Company Academy, right? That's right. Yeah, and that is the that's the professional acting training program in DC, correct? Yes, it's an MFA program. Yeah. So, what is the Academy? Well, tell us about that experience. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's a um, it's all exclusively on classical theater, and probably ninety percent on Shakespeare. So it's it's all Shakespeare all the time, and it's it's designed for people who want to get really, really good at this one particular set of skills that can then, you know, as, as I'm not the first person to say this, but if you can do, you know, once you've trained to do that kind of classical work, Shakespeare and all of that stuff, you know, everything else kind of falls into place in a really remarkable way. So it, it's a 12-month program. It's very intense, but it is absolutely paradise for Shakespeare actors, <laughs> nerds. Yeah, it's acting and voice and movement and text and stage combat and history and all kinds of, I mean, it's just, I, I am so, so grateful that I, that I uh, was able to go there. I was in the, it's a, it was a new, the new program when I went, I was in the second group of people to go through the, the program. And it's now, I think in its 20th year, yeah. close to. So it's a really, it's, it's a special place. It's a very special Well, place. I do find that when I teach, you know, I teach it and I find myself sort of drifting towards that statement, which is if you can do Shakespeare, you can do anything, right? Everything else falls into place. Mm -hmm. Well, and so let, can I ask you why? Why is that true? You know, it's, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think that, I think that when you are working on language that is that heightened, and and frankly challenging it does a couple things to you it, it it makes it very difficult for you to make any assumptions about what you're doing or what you're saying you have to really investigate every single syllable which is what you should do you know which is what you should do as an actor anyway but when i think when i think you're doing a, a contemporary thing that sounds very much like you know the way you speak or the way your friends speak or something you know you you make assumptions about the possibilities inherent in that piece of text that doesn't actually explore all the possibilities inherent in that piece of text because you think you know what it is 
And that's a, you know, it's, it's a perfectly logical thing to think. But when you're working on Shakespeare, very often at first, you, you, since you have so little idea what it is, you have to investigate it very, 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 very closely. And so after you do that enough, you start doing that with everything that you encounter, including more contemporary stuff. And you notice things that you didn't notice before. And you notice, you know, you can make choices you didn't make before because you see things that you may have taken for granted, but you think, oh, this is actually, you know, you know, this, this is this color kind of a, a, a moment. So I think that's, that's why it is. And I think, I, uh, I think that's why it's easier to do other things if you have trained in Shakespeare. I also think that Shakespeare is a container that will, will allow a huge amount of expansiveness and, and, and size in your acting choices and still be truthful and real and realistic. And I think that you get a sense working on Shakespeare of just how, how big life can be and how many possibilities there are and how much size you can bring to your own performances that you can then, you know, that you can then work into contemporary work where you may otherwise have been tempted to go small. So to sort of flip that on its head, Jim and I, we've, we've all been through training programs before. And I want to ask you, since you, you did this very intense 12 month training program where you, you, you said you nerded out on Shakespeare, which is great. So in the 20 years since you've been working professionally as a Shakespearean artist, can you go back to your training experience and think of anything that you did in training that you absolutely loved doing? And now that you're doing it as a professional you never have the luxury of doing again or have never had the luxury of doing again um i love table work i love it i can sit there all day and talk about uh language and structure and rhetoric and what these words actually mean and how you use and and how you use that specific you know i i i am hugely meticulous about why is that word there? You know, why is the why is the sentence constructed with those words in that order? You know, could have been could have flipped those two words around, still would have made sense and been grammatically correct, but it didn't. So it's that way. So why is it that way and not this? And very often, you know, professionally, you have to do a lot of that on your own. That you will get a chance to do some some table work, but but you don't get the luxury of you know two weeks or three weeks of table work where you just get to sit and pull the play apart. And we had. Uh, you know, in, in school, you know, we had whole classes dedicated to nothing but sitting there with the text and pulling, you know, pulling the plays apart, you know, and I, and I find when I'm, you know, when I'm directing, I never, you know, I, I try to schedule as much table work as possible, but I never quite have the table work process that I would like, you know, because the couple of times in, in my career when I've been able to do that, you know, when they decided, okay, we're just going to spend two weeks just doing table work. When you do get it on its feet, the thing pretty much stages itself. It, it's amazing how much, you know, fussing around working out blocking you can skip if everybody is so ridiculously clear on what they're saying and what they're doing and what is happening in every moment. A, a lot of staging choices make themselves. I, I miss that. One day, you know, one day we will have, we will have 12 week rehearsal processes and uh, we will be able to, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to spend a month just doing nothing but text and discussion. Well, but, uh, that's actually happening right now. A guy named Keith Hamilton Cobb is doing something called the Untitled Shakespeare Project. Yes. They're just, they're just tabling. I was actually, I, I, I met him and I was talking to him about it and it sounded really cool. So yeah, yeah, I'll be curious to see what they, I was really interested in talking to him about the idea that they were, you know, they were working on it to try to figure out, is this play still stageable? Can we still do this play really, you know, in a modern world, knowing what we know? And I thought that was a really interesting approach because it was not, you know, most of the time when you do 
that kind of work. You're, fig- you're trying to figure out, so how do we do this play? But once you decide that the goal is how do we do this play, you've changed the nature of the investigation. It's no longer about is the, is, is it re- should responsible people be staging this play now? Because the answer might be no. But if you say, how do we stage this play now? Then you've taken the no answer off the table. And I think that that's a really, so I was, I, I will be curious to see if he, what the answer is or if they reach an answer. Just to change topics, Gabe Rosario introduced you to us. Thank um, you, Gabe. Thank you. Shout out to Gabe for that. So you've chosen a piece to share with us today. What did you choose and, and why did you choose it? So I'm going to do, uh, um, so I'm going to do a bit of uh, Bottoms from A Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm going to do the, the speech that has been known as, as Bottoms Dream. I've played Bottoms twice now, and I really, Midsummer is one of those plays that it's, it's really easy to think that you know it, <laughs> because it seems like it's kind of mm-hmm. everywhere. And especially if you work on Shakespeare professionally, you know, it seems to come around over and over and over and over. But I think this is a, just a remarkable little speech about trying to hang on to the the mysterious and the unfathomable. Uh, it's funny. There's a uh, there's a piece of it that scholars say, and uh, people who who study the Bible that is that uh, he's kind of quoting the letter to the Corinthians. But it got me thinking. You know, it, it got me thinking that why is why is he called Bottom? Why is he called Bottom? And who yeah who is this guy? So Bottom is one of those guys. Bottom is a is a weaver <laughs> and sort of a, a semi professional actor. I always thought of him as like. You know, like the guy in community theater who knows just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> you know, he's like the guy, he did like one summer acting program in London for like six weeks, and now he knows everything. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty arrogant about it. When I did it originally for New York Classical, there was, a, he, uh, he had an ascot this red ascot that was sort of his actorly affectation Perfect. that he was really, really proud of. And then when he was transformed into the ass, the ascot came off and the ascot material became the ear. Right. So that, that right. So we sort of made a, we sort of made an ass of him out of his own pretension. Mm-hmm. And then when the ass head goes away and he wakes up after the dream and he's doing this speech and for the rest of the play, the ascot's gone. You know, he, he learned something by having his pretensions taken away, right. not by acquiring some sort of knowledge. So this character of bottom is this trait Tradesman, a, a weaver by trade who who dabbles in, in the theater and thinks of himself yep. to be quite an actor. And he's found himself in some unusual circumstances. He's had an adventure in the woods, mm-hmm. which may or may not have been a dream, but it was a pretty interesting dream. In the dream, what happens to him? Well, you know, that's that's the thing. When he wakes up after this, you know, in, in this speech, uh, we've all had this experience. You wake up, you've had a dream. It was a very vivid dream. You're like, wow, what was that about? And then as you're trying to think of it, you can feel it going away. In the speech, you can hear Bottom kind of say, well, I've had this, this thing has happened. And, and it was like, and you can hear it kind of going away from him. You know, he doesn't quite know what the dream was about. But boy, did it make him think about how much in the world he doesn't understand hmm. and how magical everything is. Well, let's hear it. Yeah. All right. This is Ian Gould reading Bottom from Midsummer Night's Dream. Act four, scene one. When my cue comes, call me and I will answer. My next is most bare pyramus. Oh, oh, hey, go. Oh. Peter Quinn's? Flute the bellows, Mendo! 
Snout the Tinker! Starling! That's my life. Stolen Henson left me asleep! I have had a most rare vision. I have had a dream. Past the wit of man to say what dream it was. Man is but a fool if he will go about to expound this dream. Methought I was... Oh, there's no man can tell what. Methought I was... And methought I had... Oh, the man is but a patched fool if he will offer to say what methought I had. The eye of man hath not heard. The ear of man hath not seen. Man's hand is not able to taste. His tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. I will get Peter Quince to write a ballad of this dream, and it shall be called... Bottom's dream! <laughs> because it hath no bottom. And I will sing it in the latter end of the play before the Duke. No, peradventure. To make it more gracious, I will sing it at her death. Thank you very much. That was lovely. You did physicalize. I did. I did. I had to. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work otherwise. But, you know, getting back to why he was called Bottom, you know, people say that, well, part of it is that all of the, all the mechanical names have connection to what they do for, for a living. They have, you know, flute is a bellows mender because, uh, you know, bellows can weave like, like flute. Quince is a carpenter and, a, you know, quince sounds like the kind of braces that they would use in carpentry. And, and bottom, you know, the, a bottom, I guess, is the core of a spool of thread that a weaver would use on a loom so he's called bottom because he's a weaver he's also called bottom because he's an ass you know so there's that sort of joke and everything but there's a but there's one there's one reference that i that i never caught before i was digging through the the notes and that is the eye of man has not heard etc 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 sequence is wrong he gets them all wrong the eye of man has not heard the ear of man has not seen of course but it's it's a reference to the book of a passage in the book of corinthians book of Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians. The eye hath not seen, and the ear hath not heard, and neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for him that, that love him. And then the next line is, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the bottom of God's secret. Mm, wow. And so I thought, oh, there's another reason he's called bottom. He's called bottom because he saw something. He saw the mm. bottom somewhere in this dream that he can't quite hold on to. Oh, I love that. But it affects him and it takes him through the, you know, and, it, and it, it, it takes him through the rest of his life, I think. He had an experience that was very close to seeing the bottom of God's secrets, whatever that means. It's a, it's a sort of a wonderfully mysterious phrase because, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, it, I mean, it goes back to this hard to pin idea down. that Midsummer Night's Dream is like this mystery, yeah. right? Yeah. So many times the characters in the play sort of half remember or half understand or sort of get but don't really get or confronted with mysteries of some kind and so that's super cool yeah that's very cool thank you for that Ian, something about your performance that i really enjoyed and i'm seeing with fresh eyes through through your performance you the burp <laughs> well yeah yeah i mean absolutely but but more more generally speaking so okay so this speech and for our listeners will 
we'll put a link to this speech on our, on our website. Who uses the website anymore? Everybody just uses other things. But there is a website called The State of Shakespeare, and we do have supplementary material, and we will have the speech posted, but you'll, you'll be able to see that. It isn't until the fifth line that Bottom says, I have had the most rare vision. And that feels like most of the time when you see this or hear this speech done, that's where it really begins, right? That's where all the stuff that comes, the four and a half lines that precede it are, are kind of fluff and, and nonsense and the actors are rushing to get to the, I have had a most rare vision. But in your rendition, Ian, uh, you, did, you did not gloss over anything in those first five lines. And that was sort of re revelatory for me to see. Where did that inspiration come from? Well, I think it's just Michael Kahn, my, my acting teacher uh, at the Shakespeare Theater back in the day, had a uh, one day in acting class was like, you know, part of being good at this is learning how to be very intelligently stupid. And what he meant was that, like, you only know what you know when you know it. You don't quite know what you're going to say until you say it. And you don't take anything for granted. So at the top of the, you know, so you have to forget, uh, you know, anytime a, a character has a soliloquy, like you have to forget that the character is going to give a speech. He doesn't know he's going to give a speech, you know. He just sees something that makes him make an observation. He's sort of half asleep. He thinks he's back at rehearsal, as we sometimes do when we're half asleep. And then he wakes up and it's dark and quiet. And there's supposed to be four other people there and none of them are there. Five other people there. And so as happens when we are sort of groggy and coming out of a sleep, the weird vividness of the dream doesn't hit right away. What hits right away is it's dark. Where is everybody? And that's it. That's the only thing that, you know, and in a different version of the play, he'd stumble around. He's all alone in the dark. He'd say, I can't believe they all left me asleep. And he wanders off stage. And that's it. Right. But what happens instead is just as he's coming to and waking up and realizing everybody's gone to the pub or whatever they have and nobody's remembered to like collect me the thing that he remembers of, of the dream hits, and now we're on to another thing and you know i've had this most rare vision i've had a, a dream or what kind of dream was it uh, i don't know past the wood of man to say and then you're on to the other then you're on to the next thing but i like to really try to squeeze out all the all the nows in every speech like this is what's happening now and then the next thing happens but that's not happening yet this is the thing that's happening now and then you know for instance you know when i when i did it just now i was of course really marking through each moment and the next step might be okay but can you can all of those moments come together a little faster <laughs> can you sort of you know right you know what i mean so you know and, and you figure out how to do that but i think that you know when you're first when you're looking at something for the first time or in my case when you're looking at something that you know i haven't looked at in a long time it's very important to just mark through exactly where you're at at every moment in the speech and live in that moment not the next thing or the thing you just like you know then once you let go of something you're on to the next thing you've let go of it and so that's the that's the process. Yeah, and I think you did that exactly what you're describing. You did exactly during your speech, yeah. and it was lovely to be able to watch you. So this is a comedy, and you have me thought I was and me thought I had. I've only seen two things that Bottom has ever thought he had during the dream, and usually it's either ears, ears or it's a big schlong. Right. So do you have a thought about that, what, what he thought he had? Because in your interpretation it's a much more impactful dream than just a comic you know yes there's this wonderful Otter. book 
by a, a woman who I think is a professor. I think she's at Oxford. Her name is Emma Smith. She wrote a book called This Is Shakespeare a couple of years ago. And it starts with the question of like, why do we keep going back to these plays? Is it because they're sort of, you know, beautifully written encapsulations of the human condition? And her argument is, well, no. All of the, all of the reasons, you know, oh, he's a great, his beautiful command of the English language, blah, 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 blah. None of that actually is, is, first of all, not terribly true. And also, I think at one point she says, it's just not terribly important. The reason we keep going back to Shakespeare is this thing that she calls gappiness. Gappiness? Gappiness. Like it has gaps. Shakespeare's plays are full of gaps. You know, uh, if it was a novel, a, a, you know, a novelization of, you know, of Midsummer Night's Dream would probably tell you what bottom looks like, but Shakespeare doesn't. So there, you know, and there are all kinds, there are all kinds of moments in the play that only that exists on the page in a kind of weird, ambiguous, liminal state that you have to fill in as actors and directors and performance, you know, or that you have to fill in as, as a reader. And it's the possibilities and the gappiness that is why we keep coming back to Shakespeare. And it was a really cool idea. And it's, articulated something for me that I had felt, uh, but I didn't have words for, and she found words for it. And I think it's just, it's great. Anyway, but in this case, me thought I was, there's no make and tell what, me thought I was, and me thought I had, you know, the patch pool, and all the things we thought I had. We don't know what he's talking about. You have to fill it in, right? So I think that what, what we would call the giant schlong possibility is there to fill that gap <laughs> if you want it. When I did it in New York Classical a while ago, I didn't want it. I didn't want it because it was not, it wasn't that kind of production. And also people brought lots and lots of families and kids to the show. And I was like, I don't, I'm not going to, it's just not appropriate. I'm not going to do it. So it was about the ears and the big snout. He had this big thing. Uh, yeah. And his face suddenly felt it was like a lot bigger. And it was like his nose, he had huge nostrils that he could sort of see in his periphery. And it was kind of, you know, and that's another way to, you know, to fill the, the gappiness. And the amazing thing is there's no right answer. They're all, yeah. they're yeah. all possible. They're all possibilities. Oh, I played around at one point with, um, you know, one of the things he found is he, he thought he had hooks. He, he had hands, but then he remembers having like, what is this? Right, right. So like, there's all sorts That's of great. things that he thought he had, he thought he had. Yeah. you know, he thought he had these weird fairy attendants who were bringing him things. You know, that was that's right. another, you know, uh, a wife who looked like a fairy. Yeah, right, right, I mean, right, right, right. Exactly. So like I, I actually became really enamored of avoiding the the giant strong joke of which there are many right, in Shakespeare. Right. Yes, yes. But I ended up saying, oh, this is actually it's really it's really interesting to not go for the obvious and think about what else it could be, because you what you realize is it actually really could be. Many, 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 many things. Right. And that's kind of what you're talking about with Michael Kahn is you have to be an intelligent. You, said you, have, to, you have to be smartly stupid, smart, I think right. is how he, how, how he put it. But yeah, but you have to like be really, you know, that you have to have the knowledge and the savvy to not presume that you know things. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment beautiful, and hard to do. And very hard to do. Yeah. Very hard to do. But, uh, but I love it. So Ian, before we let you go, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask if you do us a favor that we don't usually do this with our guests, but we got to see, because we're in Zoom and we can see the video, we got to see your performance and, and enjoy it that way. Our listeners won't have that, that luxury. I wonder if you would do us the favor of recording your monologue with your good microphone and, and sending it to us so that we can post it on our website. Sure. Absolutely. That'd, That'd be great. I will do a little, I will yeah. do a little video. Oh, oh, even better. That's the, I mean, I mean, that is even better. <laughs> is that what you, oh, oh you, mean, you meant just, re, just re-record it with the, with the audio. Well, now that you've offered to do a video, we're gonna, we can take you up on that because we can always lift the no, audio and put it on the audio Spotify. Yeah, right. Spotify. So 
yeah, yeah. that's really cool. All right. No, that's well, great. I would, I would love another go at it. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a new, that's a new direction for us, Jim. After yeah. 10 years. I mean, I think maybe it's time for us to, to take a leap. Who knows? Maybe yeah, this yeah. will lead to a whole new, whole new a whole thing. New, a video log. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. I am such a geek. I could do this all day long. Yeah, Ian, you and me so, both. Thank you so much yep. for sharing your so thoughts. Feel free to, yes, yes. So feel free to, if you ever want to chat about anything else, you just let me know. You got it. I'm that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely to meet you guys. I'm so glad, I'm so glad Gabe connected us. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yep. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.